Welcome to the Gemmer Collector Cast, a journey into the world of collecting. From Star Wars to Cabbage Patch Kids, Nintendo to Hot Wheels, from antiques to vintage finds, we're here to talk about what you collect. Now, your host, a lifelong collector and super nerd, Jeff Tucker. Hey, it's Christmas time. Have you done your Christmas shopping? Have you braved the malls and the collectible shops? And isn't it great knowing collectors and being a collector? Uh, because we're the we're the most fun people to buy for. We're easy to buy for. You know, I take my wife to the. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, collectible toy shops around where we live, or there's a place called Franken Sons that we go to, and you just say, hey, you really can't go wrong in here, because I collect so many different toy lines. Uh, now, the Back to the Future stuff is pretty hard to collect, because uh, I've gotten most of it, uh, but there's tons of other stuff out there. I love Batman, I love Ghostbusters, I love The Watchmen, I love all kinds of stuff. This is Jeff Tucker. You're listening to the Gemmer Collector Cast. And hey, it's Christmas time, folks. And we thought as a special Christmas episode, we would uh, journey through the years and talk about uh, Christmas rituals and Christmas manias. And uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I get to it. Now, I was born in the early 70s. So the first Christmas that I really remember was 1978, and that was the year I got my first Star Wars toys. Uh, if you listen to the Luke Skywalker episode, you know that that was a turning point in my life because suddenly there was a whole line of toys, and I had to have them all. And Star Wars was the first lifestyle brand for kids like me, so you could sleep in Star Wars sheets, in Star Wars pajamas with a Star Wars blanket, get up and brush your teeth with a Star Wars toothbrush, and eventually, uh, in some countries, you could even buy a tube of toothpaste that had an Ewok figure. It's true, you can look it up. But Christmas time was so special because, well, first, uh, if you're from my generation, there was no bigger indication that Christmas was on the way than the Sears Wish Book. Now, Sears has kind of gone downhill. They're, I think they're in bankruptcy now and closing a lot of stores. But at one time, you know, for a long time, they were a major force, in, uh, pun intended, major force in uh, selling toys. Uh, I can remember the Sears where I lived at Cerritos had a huge toy department. And I would go in there and just drool over all of the Star Wars toys. You know, this was the uh, store that had the ride-on speeder bike as a prize from Huffy. You couldn't buy it. You had to win it, and that's why the ride-on speeder bike toy is so rare. But Sears was a major player in toys. Uh, Sears, Kmart, uh, there was a store here called Best Products that had really good prices on Star Wars toys. But there was no nothing that compared to that Sears wish book. It would come in the mail, in the, in the late fall, right before the holiday season. And it had hundreds of pages of appliances, women's fashions, men's fashions, children's clothing, stuff for the yard, stuff for the car. And then, and then, the greatest toy section ever. The toys were usually presented in a diorama setting, like a, like a, like a battle scene. 
I remember the Hoth one was set up. You could see the AT-AT and the Rebel Transport and all the figures. And it put the toys in such a dynamic light that your mind exploded, right? And Sears not only had Star Wars toys, but they had Strawberry Shortcake toys for girls, Barbie. Uh, later in the, in the early 80s when G.I. Joe came back, massive pages of G.I. Joe. Uh, they had bikes. They had big wheels. They had uh, uh, easy-bake ovens. And they had tons of toy guns. I know, kids don't really play with toy guns anymore. But back in the 70s and early 80s, we played with toy guns. So many toys. And you'd get that catalog and slam it down because it weighed about four or five pounds. It was like a phone book. And you go, bang, slam it down. Get a pen or a marker, preferably a Sharpie. If you get a Sharpie, it'd be great. And just start circling all the things you wanted. And that way, when your mom was perusing it, she'd go, oh, very helpful. The items I need to buy are circled. And you know what, folks? For me, this technique worked. Because that's how I got, for the first Christmas of Star Wars toys, the Cantina Adventure Set from Sears, which was nothing more than a cardboard backdrop of the Cantina, and four figures. You got Greedo, Hammerhead, Walrus Man, and the ultra-rare Blue Snaggletooth, which was later cut down to the Red Snaggletooth half his size. Uh, but if you got it from the Sears catalog you got uh, that rarity. And Sears would go on to do a lot of exclusives. They would do these, uh, for The Empire Strikes Back, they did six packs of toys, of action figures, where you got like three Rebel Soldiers and then uh, Rebel General and then Hoth Head and Hoth Luke. And those were relatively inexpensive. You were getting 12, uh, excuse me, six figures for about 12 or $13. And if you've ever seen these, these are some of the rarest Kenner toys ever produced. A box set of those figures will set you back well over fifteen or sixteen hundred dollars. And I once met a guy, no joke. He wanted to know if these were worth something and showed me about ten of them. Uh, I almost had a heart attack. But that was the Sears wish book, and for boys and girls, it was the first entry into Christmas and getting into the Christmas season and knowing that toys were going to be uh, placed more and more around the store to get your parents to buy them. And the bigger toys would come out, you know, what you quote-unquote Santa gifts, you know, something that's big and left out like a bike or an Ewok village or Strawberry Shortcake had a gigantic dollhouse that's just one of the most amazing toys Kenner ever produced. There was a line of toys for girls called Glamour Gals, which were a girl's version of Star Wars figure, same scale, but they had like a restaurant and a beauty parlor, but they also had a luxury liner, like a big ship, a cruise ship, and it's one of the coolest toys you've ever seen. I actually have one of these. Uh, I always wanted one ever since I was a kid because I wanted to put my Star Wars figures on a cruise, like the Love Boat. You know, love, exciting and new, <laughs> come aboard, but... Uh, I got it a uh, pretty good uh, price off of eBay, and it currently is uh, sitting on my shelf filled uh, in, a, in, a, in a scene of everybody on board of reaction figures, which are the Kenner redo figures uh, that uh, Funko and Super 7 uh, made. And now Super 7's continuing, if you know what I'm talking about. That's pretty uh, insider stuff, but those are great figures, those reaction figures. And Super 7's doing a great job. And Funko's uh, continuing it with their... Um, 
five points of articulation. Uh, the most common one right now is the Stranger Things packs that are at Target. Uh, and good for Target for stocking them. And I've noticed that they actually go very quickly, both the single-carded and the three-packs. But the Sears Wish Book, Christmas, all that stuff, man. What are your Christmas rituals, you know? Mine, and it's funny, when you, um, when you grow up and your parents have all these Christmas rituals for you, you're sort of under the idea that this is the way everybody does it. You know, ours were very simple. On Christmas Eve, uh, we would leave out a plate of cookies for Santa. You know, we'd already turned in our lists a long time before. But on Christmas Eve, we got to open one present. And we would pick one, open it, and that would be our gift for the night. And that would try to get us to go to sleep. Uh, during the heyday of the Star Wars collection by Kenner, those Christmases, I had a, a tough time getting to sleep. Uh, it culminated in 1983 when I got... Uh, I, I was getting older. I was 12 at the time. I still loved Star Wars toys. But I wanted more Star Wars items. And that was the year I got my Don Post Darth Vader mask. And I treasured that thing. I still have it. It's actually right behind me in a case. It still has the Disneyland price tag because my mother bought it at the Disneyland Magic Shop on Main Street for $35. The Don Post Darth Vader mask, one of my all-time favorite Star Wars items. Uh, Christmas morning, we'd wake up about 5 a.m. My mother would tell us to go back to bed. So we would lay there impatiently till at least 7. And remember, there's no smartphones, folks. We would just lay there thinking of what was in the living room. Oh my gosh, Santa has been here. And then 7 a.m., my mother would bleary-eyed get up. We would race to the living room, and it looked just like Christmas Story, you know? Wrapping paper being flung everywhere, gifts being opened, and everybody having a great time. And Christmas, I mean, you, you measure your life in Christmases, right? Like, I remember that Christmas, or that, oh, that was the Christmas that happened. And Christmas becomes this, such touchstone for growing up. And now that I have kids of my own, and we've taught them, like, I've taught them my traditions and a, a culmination of my wife's traditions too. So that's how the, the families sort of morph and, and bleed together, you know, and, and mix together and uh, you create your, your new, your new uh, traditions. Uh, but part of what makes Christmas interesting is what's popular that year, you know? Because every year there's that uh, uh, gotta have it toy. And it's interesting because the news media picked up on this and uh, they picked up on it in 1983, and we'll get to 1983, because that was the turning point. But before then, uh, nobody really knew. I had to do a lot of research to find out, like, what was the, the big toy of the year? You know, what did kids want? You know, and it's interesting to see how it morphs from practical, playable toys to, can you guess what I'm going to say? Like, what's the most popular toys now? Yeah, video games. Video games are huge. How do I know that? Because I have a 17-year-old son who only wanted a video game system for Christmas, the Nintendo Switch, uh, which very expensive, quite ex a lot more expensive than the 12-inch Luke I got on my big Christmas back in the day. I think my Luke was $12. His Splatoon limited edition uh, Switch was 400 Ah, the difference between men and boys and the price of their toys, right? So we're going to go back. We're going to set up the Wayback Machine. So cue the uh, time machine noise. 
Uh, way back to the 70s. We're going to start in 1975. 1975 was the year, the summer of Jaws. Steven Spielberg's massive, massive box office hit that uh, spawned so many imitators, Orca, and then sequels, Jaws 2, Jaws 3, all the way up to the Jaws 3D in Back to the Future 2. You know, Shark still looks fake. But 1975, the big Christmas toy that year was the ideal Jaws game. Uh, have you ever seen this thing? Like this, it's funny. It, it was originally not a Jaws merchandise. Then it became a Jaws merchandise, right? Uh, it's morphed back. It's flipped licensees back and forth over the years to where sometimes it's a Jaws toy. Other times it's just a shark generic toy. It's a big plastic shark with its mouth on a hinge. You fill the mouth full of junk that a shark would eat, like in the movie Jaws. There's a, a wheel, a license plate, an anchor, uh, a boot, a soda can, all that kind of stuff. And then you and your friends use these uh, plastic picks to try to lift things out of Jaws's mouth before he snaps shut and presumably eats you. This is um, one of those toys that looks better on a shelf than actually playing it. Now, my wife is a big Jaws fan. She has a huge collection of uh, little Jaws uh, PVC figures, the Sharknado, Pop Vinyl, Shark This, Shark That, plus Shark, Shark Teeth, right? So I got her this for Christmas a couple of years ago, and I didn't realize this is, this is such a dumb toy. Like, it's a great collectible and a great piece of 70s, uh, you know, pop culture. But gameplay... You load the mouth up, and about the third turn, the mouth shuts. So each game, quote-unquote game, lasts you about 90 seconds or less. So I'm not sure how anybody has fun with this, but it was the number one selling toy of 1975. Now, we're going to blaze through the 70s here, but we can't discount perennial selling toys. These are toys that are always on the market and they sell huge amounts no matter what. And of course, you know, queen of the 70s, just like queen of the 60s when, you know, she reigned supreme and the 50s when she came out is Barbie. Uh, Barbie's always a big seller, massive sales in the 70s. Uh, Barfie, Barbie uh, during the 70s was a bride, a cheerleader. This was the debut of the uh, the Malibu dolls that had tan lines. Uh, my sister had these. These were the coolest dolls. When you move their swimsuit strap, you could actually see a tan line. Uh, Barbie had so many variations. Cowboy, uh, business suits. You know, this is the Barbie dream house era, you know, uh, that would move into the 80s with even bigger dream houses. So Barbie and also, of course, Hot Wheels. Hot Wheels were huge sellers. Mego dolls were huge sellers for Christmas, uh, but they didn't rise to the top of like the zeitgeist, like that fad novelty toy that you've got to have that year. These were slow and steady big sellers all year long. Every little girl wanted a Barbie doll on Christmas morning, but sometimes they would ask for something else. You know, so like I said, 1975 was the ideal Jaws game. 1976 was the Stretch Armstrong doll. Do you remember this guy? He's uh, out at Target now. He's been reissued. This was a doll that you could stretch his limbs as far as you wanted. He was full of corn syrup. Now, before Star Wars hit, 
Uh, I was yeah, I still played with toys. I had a Stretch Armstrong monster doll. It was a big green ugly thing. I loved this doll. I loved it up until the point that I stabbed it with a pencil because I wanted to know what was inside and corn syrup came out. Uh, I don't have the doll anymore. My mother threw it in the trash. Uh, <laughs> Stretch Armstrong dolls from that era are incredibly valuable because, can you guess why? Everybody popped them. Everybody broke them open. Most of the Stretch Armstrong dolls from that period have been preserved. They're not playable. The stuff inside is atrophied, so you can't stretch them at all. So if you want to stretch one, go get one at Target. They even have a little keychain size. But if you want to collect them, uh, you're going to pay a pretty penny because these are very, very expensive. That monster doll will set you back eight to $900 now. Or the Stretch Serpent. Uh, if you ever, ever watch... Um, uh, Pawn Stars, you know, that they actually had one on the show. Just the head, because the body had rotted away. Just the head of the Stretch Serpent is worth 1500 and up, because the run of those was so limited. So few kids had a chance to buy them, and the ones that did destroyed them. But Stretch Armstrong's very collectible. They just launched a Netflix... Um, cartoon. So if you're into Stretch Armstrong, you can watch a cartoon now and you can share that with your kids. 1977, the big, biggest selling toy that year was Micronauts. Now Micronauts actually launched in 76. This is a line of toys by the Mego Corporation. They bought the license from a company in Japan. I think it was Takara. Uh, and they, you know, gave it an American spin and called them Micronauts. These are incredibly posable space figures. Uh, little guys, big robots, big play sets. They even had a train set that was like a monorail that shot the, the cars out through air blasts. Micronauts had a huge Marvel Comics series. Uh, they've been rebooted. They're supposedly doing a big movie. But can you guess in 1977 why Micronauts was such a big hit? Yes, of course. Because Star Wars had come out, but there were no toys. So if you went to the toy store looking for a Luke Skywalker figure, you were out of luck back then. But you could find an entire line of very attractive. Uh, the packaging for the Micronauts is beautiful. And the price points were very good. They were very inexpensive toys. They were interchangeable, so you could pop the hands and the heads off and uh, rearrange the figures however you wanted. Micronauts was a great toy line. Uh, it came back in the early 2000s. Um, a company, <clears throat> it might have been Palisades. Somebody got the license and reissued them. And I bought a few. And they're just beautiful, beautiful toys. They still stand up. Now, even though they were the number one of 77, uh, and the sales were brisk. I mean, very brisk. And the Mego other lines were doing well. For some reason, Mego just couldn't keep it together. And by the early 80s, they were out of business. <coughs> Which is a darn shame because they made some of the greatest toys of the 1970s. And Micronauts deserves a place right up there in the Hall of Fame. The other big toy for 1977 was the Star Wars Early Bird Kit. I've talked about it before. This was Kenner's... Uh, big switcheroo, big trickery of selling kids a empty box for Christmas with the promise that a few months later they would get 
the first Star Wars figures to roll off the line. Uh, that's you know obviously very very expensive. An early bird kit unopened will set you back two to three thousand uh, dollars. They're very very rare. Okay, 1978. Can you guess what the number one toy line was? Yeah, of course. It was Star Wars. Uh, nothing compared to Star Wars. Uh, if you're on Facebook and social media, there's a video going around of a 1978 uh, news broadcast about Star Wars toys comparing it to Mickey Mouse, which, because Lucasfilm is owned by Disney now, is actually pretty funny. But, you know, they had never seen anything like this, where the retailer would open the box of action figures and they would just vanish. And the retailer would have to get another box of action figures. Star Wars toys were flying off the shelf like nothing we'd ever seen before. And all that foot traffic in the toy stores and in the department stores uh, really helped Hot Wheels and it helped Barbie and all the other toy lines. And there were a lot of knockoff Star Wars toy lines that really picked up uh, sales because uh, Star Wars was selling out everywhere. And we're talking action figures, model kits, um, pajamas, dishware, uh, anything they could put the Star Wars name on, they put the Star Wars name on, and they sold. Okay, 1979. Can you guess what I'm going to say? Yes, it was more Star Wars. Star Wars continued to dominate. Kenner was on the top of their game selling Star Wars toys. By 1979, they had the Boba Fett mail-away figure, the... Uh, the uh, uh, infamous rocket-firing Boba Fett, which never actually reached any kid's hands. No matter what your friend down the street said, his cousin never got one. Nobody ever got one. But at the same time, uh, Kenner is also debuting Strawberry Shortcake, 1979. And Strawberry Shortcake... Uh, see, I was wrapped up in Star Wars, so I didn't realize. But looking back, uh, that little Shortcake doll dominated, man. She was... Huge. They had so many dolls, and they had so many accessories, things to ride on, horses and snails and little houses, and like I said, a gigantic dollhouse, puzzles, you name it. Strawberry Shortcake was huge. Um, my wife collected Strawberry Shortcake, the little miniatures, and the gimmick there was that all the dolls smelled like their namesake. So strawberry shortcake smelled like strawberry shortcake. Lemon meringue smelled like lemon lemons. Uh, blueberry pie smelled like blueberry pie, right? Uh, a really innovative doll line. Every character looks great. Uh, it's a very um, collectible toy line. Uh, and with so many items to collect, uh, shortcake can keep you on your toes for years trying to put together a complete collection. Okay, so we're turning the, the calendar it's Christmas, 1980. And what's the number one toy? Do you remember Rubik's Cube? Now, Rubik's Cube is still around. Kids on YouTube like to show you how fast they can uh, solve it. But in 1980, every one of us wanted a Rubik's Cube. It was the coolest thing going. Uh, we could take it to school and play with it on uh, recess. Uh, there were so many knockoffs, Missing Link, Orb, uh, you name it, but nothing compared to uh, Rubik's Cube. They were just a, a real solid toy, simple, uh, made by Ernesto Rubik. Uh, I think he was Hungarian. He was a mathematician. And uh, it just, it sparked and stimulated the imagination. You know, like a hula hoop. You know, it doesn't do much. 
you put it in your hands and you decide what it what it what it's capable of. And we would solve the cube and then we would turn into different patterns, you know, to this way, to that way, to this way, to that way, and suddenly it's checkerboard. Uh, or we always had the friend we'd look over and he was taking it apart. Because if you twisted one way and then twisted the other, you could pull the first piece out, take the whole thing apart, and then put it back together uh, right side. And so you could cheat that way. But everybody had a Rubik's Cube. This was a huge, huge fad. Uh, still continues today. They still make them. Uh, they're not, you know, obviously as popular as they used to be. But uh, every kid in my elementary school had a Rubik's Cube. They made little keychain, little tiny keychain size. Uh, I love those. Uh, I just had such a good time. Some kids would take the stickers off and put the stickers back on. And I always said, you know, you're just ruining it. Take it apart if you want to cheat. Okay, 1981. Hey, we're starting to turn, folks. We're going to introduce in 1981 the toy line that, in my opinion, killed the Star Wars line. Yes, the movies ended. But more importantly, kids' tastes changed. In 1981 saw the debut of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I have the power. Uh, this, again, like, like Strawberry Shortcake, it's hard to describe the mania that surrounded Masters of the Universe. There were tons of other toy lines at the time. There was uh, the Power Lords. There was Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. There was Brave Star. There was Photon. There was uh, Black Star. I mean, I knew all these lines, but nothing dominated the toy aisle like He-Man. They were bigger than Star Wars figures. Each figure had some sort of built-in action feature that Star Wars didn't have. And it just sparked something that every kid had to have one. And they had to have them all. And He-Man, these were by Mattel. This was Mattel's way of getting back into the action figure line. They, um, they launched with everything. They'd, Castle Grayskull is huge. It's weird to think, like, playsets have pretty much gone out of fashion except for uh, Play School and Fisher-Price and those kind of things. Imagine next. But the main main toy lines don't really get playsets. Uh, right now for Christmas, there's a Spider-Man playset, and there's a BB-8 playset that opens up. But for the most part, Star Wars playsets have gone the, you know, the way of the Dodo. They don't exist anymore. But He-Man had Castle Grayskull and Snake Mountain and eventually Eternia. Have you ever seen the Eternia playset from Masters of the Universe? Look it up on Google. It is one of the biggest toys I have ever seen. It's right up there size-wise and impressive-wise with the USS Flag from G.I. Joe. And the USS Flag, I consider to be the biggest and greatest toy playset ever made. You know, And I'm a Star Wars guy, and I'm still admitting that Joe trumped Darth Vader's Death Star with the USS Flag. But He-Man was just a juggernaut. You know, and here I can tell you what happened. Here's what happened. Uh, it bears a little bit of explanation. You probably know this if you're a collector. But up until the 80s, there was a law in place that you couldn't advertise toys during kids' commercials if the toys were of the show you were watching. It's very complicated. Needless to say, in the 80s, that ended. 
So He-Man was able to launch with an animated show that was on every day, five days a week. G.I. Joe did the same thing with the Real American Hero line. Uh, She-Ra had the same line. Transformers had the same deal. You could make a, a program that was essentially a 22-minute commercial for your product. This had never been allowed before. So Star Wars, which you had to go to the movies to see, again, not a lot of homes in 1981 have a VCR. And if they do, they're beta. And if they have beta or even VH VHS, Star Wars is not available yet. <coughs> so the only way to... Keep it, keep it going was I had Star Wars cassettes, those, uh, you know, when R2-D2 beeps, doo-doo, turn the page. I had those. They weren't quite as dynamic as having a He-Man cartoon on every day where He-Man fought Skeletor and the forces of evil from Castle Grayskull and he screamed, I have the power, and he turned Cringor into Battle Cat and at the end gave you a lesson about, you know, whatever, a life lesson. Uh, this was a recipe that Star Wars couldn't compete, and Lucas wasn't interested. George Lucas wasn't interested in a daily cartoon series. So He-Man trumped it all with their huge cartoon and toy line that complemented it. So that was something that no one could foresee, and the toy line was huge. Oh my gosh, massive. So... 1982. Hey, the biggest selling toy of 1982 may surprise you. It was Glowworm. Do you remember Glowworm? Glowworm was a little toy that you gave to your kid. It was a bug. And when you squeeze him, his face lights up. And this is so that when your kid's in the dark, he has a friend who can help him survive the night. It's a really sweet toy. Uh, I think it's by Play School. They tried to... Um, Extend the line with a lot of little plastic figures that glow in the dark. But the big seller was the uh, Glowworm Basic that actually his face l lights up. I mean, what a cute little toy. Well, hey, folks, we've reached 1983. This is the turning point. This is when America collectively lost its mind. What am I talking about? I could only be talking about the Cabbage Patch Kids. Dun, dun, dun. Xavier Roberts invented the Cabbage Patch Kids, I think, in Georgia. He opened up a hospital, and the gimmick was you weren't buying a doll. You were adopting it. So that changed everything. You got an adoption certificate. And this little turn, oh my gosh, this little addition, and the dolls were cute too. The original ones were made out of cloth, all handmade, all hand-stitched at... Uh, I think it was called Baby Town General or Baby General Hospital. And the the combination of the unique look of the doll, and I, I guess the fact that, I mean, if you delve into it, the dolls are grown. They're called Cabbage Patch dolls because they grow in the Cabbage Patch, right? And then you come in and you adopt one. And in the Atlanta place, if your doll got broken or or you you know it got ripped, you could take it there and they would wash it up, they would sew it up and give it back to you. And the women who did it were dressed as nurses. Like they totally were giving children an experience, you know. And the toy manufacturers took notice. And the first cabbage patch kids were put out by Coleco company doesn't even exist anymore. It's been swallowed up 10 times since then. Uh, but Coleco, 
Coleco bought the rights to the Cabbage Patch doll and made it a mass market item. And for whatever reason, the adoption certificate, the story, the look of the doll, maybe it was artificial, artificially choking supply, this doll became the most sought-after toy of 1983. Uh, there's actually, you go on YouTube, you can look up footage of Christmas shopping 83, and there's a striking video of shoppers trying to get to a display of Cabbage Patch dolls, and the manager of the store, I'm not joking, he has a baseball bat, and he's telling them to get back. Women would get into actual fist fights for these dolls. If you went to Toys R Us and saw a display of Cabbage Patch Kids, the display lasted about 12 seconds. People were grabbing as many as they could. They were hoarding them. They were trying to sell them uh, in the um, uh, the recycler. You remember the recycler or the penny saver? Remember the penny saver? But uh, like this was crazy. And my sister wanted one. My mother wanted one. They had reached such a fever pitch that everybody and I, I didn't want one. I didn't get adopting a doll. But then they're not, they're not marketed towards me. But the fervor and the fury over these dolls was crazy. I remember my mother got one. She was so proud when she came home. She got it at Mervyn's. She was so, and Mervyn's doesn't even exist anymore. But she got it at Mervyn's, and she brought it in like she had won the war. Kids, you're never going to believe what I got. My own Cabbage Patch And it wasn't for us. It was for her. And the Cabbage Patch kids all came with their own names. And here's how funny it is. This was, what are we looking at now? 34 years ago. And I can still tell you that the name of the Cabbage Patch that she brought home was Nicholas Reg, R-E-G. Unbelievable that I still know that, but that's how big a mania, a Christmas mania, every little girl, every adult woman, and some men wanted a Cabbage Patch Kid under the Christmas tree for 1983. And Coleco sold so many of these toys that they couldn't keep up with demand. This was the beginning of the media covering it, you know, of reporters standing in front of stores and saying, we're here at the store where the Cabbage Patch Mania, uh, two women were sent to the hospital. And you're like, these are dolls and people are losing their minds. I mean, it was really interesting to see and to live through it, you know, and to totally live through it was amazing. Um, I, it, it's hard to describe. You can watch the video and uh, the video on YouTube and just be in awe, but it really did happen. You know, they're always uh, quick to show you those Black Friday videos where women are fighting over things. But they really do com really do pale in compared to the fights over Cabbage Patch Kids. Okay, 1984. 1984. By 1984, uh, Star Wars is gone. So... He-Man is continuing to dominate, but a new challenger emerges and becomes the top-selling toy, and that is Transformers. Uh, Transformers blew everything out of the water. So many kids I knew got instantly addicted to Transformers. Again, this was a line imported uh, from Japan, by, from Takara, to uh, Hasbro bought the rights. Originally, uh, they came with little drivers, little people, because they were supposed to be you know, operated by people. But Hasbro made the great decision to 
nix the people and make them sentient beings. And again, that all-important cartoon. That cartoon comes on, you see the toys in action, you want the toys at the toy store. It was such a symbiotic relationship and really propelled the 80s to sell so many toys and to really instill in boys and girls alike the need to collect them all. Whether it was, again, She-Ra or Masters of the Universe or Ring Raiders or Air Raiders or Food Fighters or Dungeons and Dragons, or all of the amazing toy lines that came out and really tried to claim that Star Wars crown. But only a few really rose to the top and had, you know, series after series after series, and then continue. I mean, Transformers are still on the shelf today, 33 years later. He-Man's come back a few times, and then retreated and come back and retreated. Right now, He-Man uh, is being put out by Super 7 in a 3 and 3 quarter inch toy line as a throwback retro line. But Transformers, huge, man. That uh, Everybody wanted that Optimus Prime truck. You know, it's one of the coolest toys ever made. You know, I, I peripherally liked Transformers. Uh, I was always looking for something after Star Wars to get into. It would have to wait until 1985 and Back to the Future, and there was nothing to collect. So I was still buying Transformer toys. I even had a couple of oof, GoBots. I'm not proud of my GoBot collection, but I was proud of my Transformers collection. I had Optimus Prime, and I had Soundwave, and I had uh, Wheeljack, and uh, Bumblebee. Uh, great toy line, great toy line. To uh, combat that, uh, Kenner came out with Mask. Remember Mask? These were regular cars and vehicles that popped open all these weapons and such. What a great toy line. There's rumor of a Mask movie. After the success of Transformers, almost anything's on the table. But they were the number one selling toy of uh, Christmas 1984. And a lot of kids woke up that morning uh, to Optimus Prime. And uh, how great is that, man? I dig it. 1985. The number one toy in 1985. Your parents had to have some money. Because if you wanted a Teddy Ruxpin, he was very expensive. Teddy Ruxpin just came out again this year. You can actually go to Target right now and get a Teddy Ruxpin. He's still very expensive. But Teddy Ruxpin was a teddy bear that had audio animatronics in his face. So when you put a cassette in him, he would blink and move his mouth and tell you a story. There was a whole line of these uh, interactive. This was the, the, the early like infancy of child robotic toys. And um, what's interesting is that Worlds of Wonder... The company that made uh, Teddy Ruxpin, they made a lot of really high-end stuff for a while. They were also the ones who brought uh, Laser Tag out in a beautiful set with the helmet and the vest. Uh, it's the one that the Goldbergs used in their episode. Uh, but Teddy Ruxpin was what really put them on the map. There was a Teddy Ruxpin cartoon. It was hard to find. Didn't really air a lot of places. There was a Teddy Ruxpin action figure line. But the crown jewel... And the number one toy that Christmas was the Teddy Ruxpin Talking Bear. Uh, parents were just in awe of this toy. A, a, a teddy bear that can tell you a story and react and blink. I mean, it was just amazing. There was another, a few other toys that did this. There was a uh, Big Bird that did the same thing and a uh, Mother Goose. And the Mother Goose was just 
terrifying to look at. Look up the talking Mother Goose uh, thing on Google. You'll be terrified. But Teddy Ruxpin was very sweet. You know, he talked and he told you a story. Uh, really fun. A lot of kids wanted to get one and put like a heavy metal tape in it, but it wouldn't work like that. It didn't work off of sound recognition. There was actually coding in the cassette tape that told it how to move so that they could have proprietary uh, rights to that technology. I totally get that, right? But very expensive. Okay, 1986. This is the next big turn. The best-selling toy of 1986 was the Nintendo Entertainment System. This is when video games are slowly becoming a thing at home. And the arrival of the Nintendo Entertainment System and your ability to play Mario Brothers at home without putting quarter after quarter after quarter in the machine was unbelievable. Nintendo had the brains to sell it as an entertainment system, not a video game system, because at this point, Atari's going out of business, the ColecoVision is fading, the Intellivision is fading, Vectrex never took off. But the Nintendo one was the first one to really, since Atari's 2600, get its toe in the door and sell you game after game after game. And with, I think this was a symbiotic relationship. Even though Nintendo fought it, the fact that video stores saw that people would rent video game cartridges the same as they would a movie helped to spur sales of the Nintendo system. Because you could buy your Nintendo system, and instead of shelling out $40, $50 for a cartridge, you could go to your local video store for a couple of bucks, rent the game for a couple of nights, and see if you liked it. Nintendo fought this forever. They wanted people to just buy the game. But I think in the long run, whether they would admit to it or not, Renting the games really helped sell systems because you didn't have to commit just the system and not the games to have a good time. <coughs> I worked at a video store and people would come in on a Friday after, you know, after Christmas. I mean, you imagine what it was like at a video store after Christmas in the 80s. Everybody's either gotten a VCR for Christmas, or a video game system, and they rent everything. There were days at the video store, we had nothing on the shelf because everything was rented. Every video game and every VHS tape rented. Uh, when I worked there, the number one Nintendo rental was either Tecmo Bowl or RC Pro-Am. These games were huge. And man, Nintendo wrote it for all they could and started introducing the Game Boy, and then the Super Nintendo, and you know, the list goes on and on and on. But 1986 was the first year that a video game system topped the charts and really made an impact. You know, that's where you've got the people, in, the, the guy in the, the trench coat in front of the, the store saying, we're here live at uh, McNally's Electronics where they can't keep any of the Nintendos in, in stock. Sir, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Everyone's buying these Nintendo. I mean, if you, you can look up these... These, these news footage broadcasts, they're hysterical. And we've not learned any lessons since, folks. Every Christmas, there is another mania that uh, sweeps the nation. Uh, in 1992, it was the talking Barney doll. I, I don't know how many kids, if you're listening, grew up watching Barney. I love you. You love me. They had a doll that did that. Uh, every kid wanted that talking Barney doll. 
Like, that was a huge, huge toy. Uh, 1995, we're just going to skip around. 1995, Power Rangers. I mean, if you weren't around at the beginning of Power Rangers and the the shortage of toys, those first triangle-boxed Power Ranger figures, uh, they retailed for about 8 bucks at Toys R Us. You could pick up a penny saver or a recycler, and those would be listed for 50 to $60 each, depending on who you wanted. When Tommy the Green Ranger came out, forget about it. His figure... Hundred bucks. His uh, dragon, not dragon, but tiger knife, whatever it was, the knife that Tommy had, that was like two hundred bucks at one point. Power Rangers were in such short supply and in such high demand, everybody had to have them. Just crazy. You remember Pogs? You know, Pogs only lasted one Christmas, but for that one Christmas, everybody wanted cardboard circles. I can't describe it. I don't understand it, but. Pogs were huge. I've talked to kids today. They have no concept of what a pog is. You know, they're mentioned briefly on an episode of The Simpsons, if you've seen that. Remember Alf? He's back in pog form. But most kids don't know what pogs are. You know, and you're like, well, they were a cardboard circle that came on a drink, a, a jug of milk in Hawaii, and kids would collect them and, and throw them down. And if they flipped over, the kids would go, I'm already done listening to you, old man. You're like, I get it. I'm bored talking about them, but I understand that they were huge. Uh, but if you're talking about the quote-unquote modern-day era, no Christmas fad can compare to 1996 Tickle Me Elmo. I, again, I don't understand this thing. This is that red creature from Sesame Street, you know, and when you touch him, he goes, Oh, Elmo, ticklish! And then he laughs. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get it. Uh, it was not a cheap toy. It was 20, 25 bucks. But for a while, if you if your kid wanted one, and for some reason, everybody wanted one of these things, this was going to set you back 200 bucks in 1996. These things were crazy. There were fist fights in stores over Tickle Me Elmo. The retailer couldn't even open the box. The, the moms would just push him out of the way, grab it, and run. Imagine that. 1998, the follow-up to Tickle Me Elmo was the Furby, another electronic toy covered in fur. You know, this was the, um, like we talked about Teddy Ruxpin. This is how you sell robot toys to kids because if the, the moms won't buy a big, the moms won't buy a big, ugly robotic toy. If it's a robot, you know, you got to tell her, Mom, I want the robot. What do you want? I want the robot. But if the robot's covered in red fur, like Elmo, or multicolored fur like Furby, and it looks cute, your mom's going to buy it. Those Furbies flew off the shelf, man. My son wanted one in 1998, and we went from store to store to store until, I mean, you have to get lucky. There has to be one hidden in another department by somebody who's coming back for it, and you snake it from them, right? Unbelievable Furby. Uh, to this day, I still don't get it. I don't understand the appeal. We're also talking about the era of Beanie Babies. Remember Beanie Babies? Everybody wanted these Beanie Babies. The Thai Beanie Babies, there were the collectible stores, not the collectible stores, but like gift shops in the mall would get them. And I remember going to the mall, there'd be a line of like 200 people. Like, is somebody signing uh, autographs today? No, no, the Beanie Babies are coming out. 
What are beady babies? Oh, they're little stuffed animals. And you guys are waiting. Does it does it talk? No. Does it light up? No. What does it do? Oh, no, it's just a stuffed animal. You're waiting in line two hours for a stuffed animal? Oh, yes. And oh, my God. And people thought they were going to retire on them. Have you ever seen some of those? I mean, there was a whole Beanie Magazine uh, cottage industry of rating and telling you how much they're worth. And at some point, some of the Beanie Babies, like the mouse or the dinosaur, they were worth like $1,000, $2,000. Oh, my gosh. People really thought... People really thought they were going to retire on these things. Uh, there's a great picture that goes around of a divorce in 1999 where the husband and wife are dividing their Beanie Babies up in the courtroom while the judge watches. Another, I mean, just mania, right? Uh, closer to home, closer to modern day, 2009 was Zuzu Pets. Do you remember Zuzu Pets? These were uh, battery-operated hamsters. Um for a while, I, if you went and got a Zuzu pet now, there's plenty of Zuzu pets. But, you know, for a while, gone. I remember getting a Zuzu pet and, and putting it in the cart because, again, my kid wanted it. Put it in the cart, and people followed me around the store. Are you going to buy that? Yes. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to buy it. You know, just a couple of years ago or last year, Hatchimals. Remember Hatchimals? They're still popular. This is a toy that... It's battery operated and it's an egg and you turn it on and eventually it hatches out of the egg. I, I don't know. It's beyond my reasoning. I don't know what it does. I do know that last Christmas, a lot of people were disappointed because their hatchable didn't hatch, which it should hatch because that's in the name of the product, right? But it just goes to show you that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And every year, the news media and the toy companies are going to hype up something that everybody's got to have. They're going to artificially choke supply so that people will be agitated trying to find them and that they'll feel a sense of accomplishment when they do. And as collectors, we all know that. Almost every day, I'm out hunting for action figures or books that I like. And when I find them, you get a rush, you know, like, boom, oh, I'm, I got it. And... <coughs> these Christmas manias are when regular folks get that feeling that us collectors get every day, right? I go to the flea market or the swap meet and I see something in a pile of junk and I get I get a rush. Oh, there's that thing, you know? I just uh, a couple of weeks ago found uh, Captain America Pez without feet. I mean, these are really rare and they were only a buck a piece because the guy thought they were new Pez. So, I get why people get that feeling because I, I look forward to that feeling when I'm out shopping, out hunting, you know. And Christmas time is when the whole world's out hunting and they're trying to not only get that rush, but there's also that feeling of my kid wants this and I finally got it for him. And I feel great knowing that I can put this up in the, in the closet and then a Christmas morning they're going to open it and I'm going to feel, I'm going to, we love giving things. Christmas is about giving, you know, it's about finding that item and then giving it to the person who really wanted it. So what are your rituals? What are your manias? Did I miss one? You know, go on Facebook and on the Jimmer page, let us know what mania did I miss? What toy mania did I miss? You know, I tried to get as many as I could uh, in the episode that we're doing, but 
Who knows what the future holds, you know? Star Wars is back. Marvel is bigger than ever. DC's trying to get that uh, DC universe going. Power Rangers are still around. Uh, one of the coolest toys I've seen this Christmas is there's a, Target has a line of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And there's a, again, there's a whole mania I didn't even get to that deserves its own episode. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, they have them dressed as the Ghostbusters. These are so cool. And I'm not even a Turtles fan. I'm a Ghostbusters fan, so they're really cool. So when you're out shopping, you know, think about uh, all those manias. Think about the ghosts of Christmas manias past, right? Because who knows what'll be, what the next one will be. And what are you out shopping for? And what's on your kid's list? And hey, what's on your list? I don't know. I don't really want anything this Christmas. My wife asked me, I was like, I don't really want anything. I, uh, I've done really well Back to the Future-wise this year, and there's nothing really to collect. And my Christmas morning will really be spent uh, enjoying my family and me giving them things and watching their faces light up when they get, you know, that item that they didn't think I knew that they wanted. And that, Charlie Brown, is what Christmas is all about. Hey, this is Jeff Tucker. You're listening to the Jemmer Collector Cast. You can follow Jemmer on Twitter at Jemmer, G-E-M-R. Go to the Jemmer website, G-E-M-R.com, and you can create your own profile and upload pictures of your collectibles. You can trade, you can show off, you can tell people what you're looking for. You can follow me on Jemmer. I'm at Jeff Tucker, J-E-F-F. T-U-C-K-E-R, it's one word, and you can check out pictures of my Back to the Future collection, which has taken me a long time to put up there because I have a lot of Back to the Future stuff, and I just realized I have more Back to the Future stuff I haven't put up because I, I realized I have about 10 or 15 Back to the Future shirts, and I haven't put up pictures of my Back to the Future costumes that I've put together because when I go to conventions, yes, I do like to dress as Marty McFly because I'm a huge nerd and I'm proud of that. <laughs> but hey, if you're listening to this show, you already knew that. This is the Jemmer Collector Cast. Jemmer is where collectors collect. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and other collectors. Till next time, keep collecting.